Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of Conversations with the Code Nine Foundation. In this episode, we are incredibly fortunate to be joined with, uh, joined by, I should say, CEO of Beyond Blue, Georgie Harmon. Georgie, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Erin. Thanks for thinking of me and um, looking forward to the chat. Now, Georgie, I have to admit that I am a bit of a fan of yours and I have been for quite a while. Uh, But for those listeners who aren't maybe quite as familiar with your history, now you previously served as Deputy CEO of the National Mental Health Commission here in Australia. And prior to that, you were a Senior Executive in the Federal Department of Health. And I believe it was during your time with the Department of Health that you actually experienced what you've called previously in other interviews, a life-changing meeting. So is that correct? And if so, could you maybe tell us a little bit about that meeting? Yeah, sure, Erin. It was absolutely life-changing. And, you know, I guess I I describe myself as, you know, I've had a really interesting career, uh, but I am a recovering public servant. Um, But I I look back (laughs) fondly at my time working in government because it gave me not only amazing opportunities in, in terms of my career, but it introduced me to the most extraordinary people. And um, so I was working in Canberra. I was working for the Department of Health and Ageing and I'd been given a a new job to do and it was a job that had a whole range of social policy areas, but one of those was mental health and suicide prevention. And it was a policy area that I'd not worked in previously. But I remember thinking, this will be really interesting Um, You know, I don't know anyone um, who lives with depression. Rubbish. (laughs) I've never never experienced poor mental health myself. Rubbish. (laughs) Um, And I guess I, you know, and I'm really open about this. I had quite, I guess, stigmatised views about um, what people who were affected by poor mental health looked like. Um, and I had, it was in my, I think it was my first or second week in the job, I met with a group of consumer and carer advocates. And they came into my office, and we sat down and I kind of did the, you know, the intros and everything like that. And, and I talked about the fact that I was really excited about working in the area, that I wanted to do some really important reforms um, with the support of the minister at the time, and that we were really keen to listen to the voices of consumers and carers, and we considered them to be really important stakeholders. Now, they reacted quite um, viscerally to that <laughs> because... <laughs> They they said to me, we're sick and tired of bureaucrats like you talking down to us like this and actually talking to us about how you just want to listen to us. We have the answers. We want to be active partners in the solution. Um, And they told me, the first time I'd heard it, um, the phrase, nothing about us without us, Mm. Um, which really has stayed with me and I think and I hope every day drives the way that I work Um, and the way that I lead Beyond Blue. We cannot do anything, in my view, well and properly and meaningfully at Beyond Blue, um, and I think more broadly in life, without actually working alongside, sitting alongside and empowering people whose lives we're trying to improve. Absolutely. And that's a really, really powerful message, and it's certainly something that we understand incredibly well at the Code 9 Foundation because, you know, we that nothing about us without us yeah that really resonates and I'm sure for so many of our members 
as well. And but I'm just wondering, I mean, that's certainly, I mean, it's fantastic to live by that philosophy and to, to, to be guided by that, but that has to sort of take its toll. And I'm wondering how your role with CEO and everything you've done before that and all of your amazing work at Beyond Blue, how has that and really getting to understand it and take more time to really understand the lived experiences of others, mm. how has that impacted your mental health? You know what? People often say to me, gosh, how do you do your job? It must be really depressing. Um, it must be really exhausting. It must be really um, you know, it must be feel like a real weight. And my response generally to, to those people, of course, I have my up and down days and, and times where it does, you know, I, I do feel the weight of responsibility and, and the stories that I hear constantly um, do get to me from time to time. But I must say, my response is generally, my job is a job that's actually filled with more joy mm. than sadness. Mm. Um, joy because I see that with the right environment, with the right support, with the right encouragement and with the right structures that help people to live their best lives, the millions of Australians who are affected by poor mental health are incredible human beings. They are incredible contributors to their community. Um, and I take great inspiration and, and as I said, joy in that. Um, and, and I take great pride in the fact that with those right support structures and, you know, empowering, emp empowerment, people are changing their lives. People are changing their family lives. People are changing their workplaces. People are changing their communities. Um, so, again, I, I, the, 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 the exposure to the stories of trauma and sadness and death and, uh, and you know, um, struggle uh, obviously drive me and there are times that it gets to me, but on the whole I, f I find them incredibly motivating and inspiring. Um, it's also changed how I think about myself, mm -hmm. my own mental health. Um, and, you know, I've had, since I've been the CEO of Beyond Blue, I've had my own uh, experience with depression, um, not caused by my job, <laughs> but actually, you know, as a result of a whole re range of, of life events um, that really kind of got on top of me. And I did not take the medicine that I often, you know, that I every day in my job tell people to take. So I stopped sleeping well. I stopped exercising. I stopped um, you know, eating properly. I stopped, um, I hid from everybody about, you know, how I was really feeling and the fact that most days I didn't want to get out of bed. Um, and I started drinking really heavily. So all the things that I shouldn't do, I did. Um, and, you know, uh, as a result of, you know, me putting that mask up, I went down. Um, now, what happened to me was um, a couple of people in my life, one at work and one outside of work, came to me and said, we see you, we can see what's going on, we don't like what we're seeing, what can we do to help? And because I have the job that I do and I know what is the right thing to do, I, that was the moment that I just thought, well, that's not working, so I better start taking my own medicine. So I went to see a, psycho a psychologist. I went on medication for a while um, and I practised good sleep habits. I went, joined a gym. I stopped drinking so much and, you know, I'm now great. But it's that experience has actually made me appreciate, I think, at a far more, uh, far deeper level what people who live with depression actually go through. Yeah. 
Um, and I think that, you know, helps me in my work. So, you know, yes, it's hard sometimes, but but on the whole, um, I, I think it's taught me some fantastic lessons about life, work and the universe. Do you think I, f- I find that really interesting and it's something that I always struggle with sometimes too, um, you know, when it comes down to actually practicing what we preach and through code nine I'm so often writing blog posts that tell people to look after yourself and the one that we wrote today actually for example was around you know that you know again just re-emphasizing that self-care isn't selfish that sometimes you need to be quite selfish and stop worrying about everybody else because it's as they say when you get on a plane to go um, on a trip somewhere and those the you know the um, cabin crew do their little spiel and it's always about that oxygen mask and put put yours on before you help anyone else and it's because yeah if, if you're not in a good place then how are you going to help yourself let alone anybody else and I'm just wondering just listening to what you were saying then does maybe sometimes when you're in a, a really visible leadership role particularly within the space of mental health did that sort of some may maybe subconsciously even uh, get you to put that mask up because you thought I'm I'm the CEO of Beyond Blue I can't be depressed that wouldn't yeah. be a good look. Well, not not that it wouldn't be a good look because you know it's no one's fault. Yeah. But but I think what it what it made me realise was that I need to you know practice what I preach and and, and I love that line that you use. It's actually a it's a self care is not a slogan. It's actually a a very strong. And it's not selfish either. It's a, it's an act of strong self replenishment, um, and we cannot, especially if we're in leaders leadership positions or people look to us to be making good decisions and to be supporting them. We we've got to put ourselves first, and you know it's it's that's that's hard work, yeah. especially when you do have you know very busy. Um, a very busy professional life. It's certainly something that I'm very conscious of at the moment um, as, you know, obviously during the pandemic we've been busier than ever and the community needs Beyond Blue more than ever. Mm. Um, you know, I'm no good to my team um, if I fall over. So yeah. I've got to be doubly vigilant about my own mental well-being. I've got to look out for the signs that I now can recognise in myself when I am slipping back into those old patterns or those old thought processes and be very be very proactive about um, fixing them when I when I start to see them. Yeah. I love what I love actually I've just written down and circled it on my notepad where you said self-replenishment. I love that idea because sometimes when we talk about self-care, it does like that care aspect of it maybe gets a bit caught up in, oh, I don't have time for a bubble bath or a massage. It's like, no, no, it's so much more than that. But when you talk about replenishment and it's that topping up the, because I like to talk about, you know, in terms of resilience, we've got this resilience tank and we're driving around. You wouldn't drive around with your car constantly on red. So you can't drive around with your resilience tank empty and all of these self-care or self-replenishment things that we do help us to top up that resilience tank and yeah we have to move away I think from this ideology that caring for ourselves is indulgent in some way Mm. and look at it as a a necessity yeah it's it's not it's it's not self-indulgent it's not selfish it's actually smart and sensible um and I think you know I love that analogy about the car um it's absolutely essential to our to our jobs as leaders, or, or our jobs as um, partners, or our jobs. You know, in the in the in you know your communities, your your amazing members who are families or 
or, or first responders themselves. Mm. Um, you know, they are no good to the community. They are no good to their partner unless they're actually, you know, putting themselves first, first too. Yeah. Now, Georgie, the Productivity Commission issued its draft report following the inquiry into mental health, and I'm wondering if you could maybe reflect on your ideas around why you think it's so important for us as a country to look at how we're dealing with mental health. Yeah. Well, interestingly, the the Productivity Commission has now actually finished its work. It's delivered its final report to government um, very recently, and the government, I think, has got three weeks or something to table that report in Parliament. So we're very keenly anticipating um, having a look at what the the PCs had to say. I think there's a couple of things I want to comment on. Firstly, um, the mental wealth of the nation. Um, is is a really important concept. The fact that the Productivity Commission is looking at mental health reform, um, the Productivity Commission looks at the kind of systemic issues that actually allow us as a country to thrive both economically and socially. Um, And putting a a significant inquiry into the hands of the Productivity Commission, I think, sends a very strong message out that it's about structural reform first and foremost. It's not about fiddling around the edges. Mm. Um, And it's about all of our lives, all parts of our lives. It's not just about the health system. It's about jobs, education, family support. Um, It's all parts of government. Um, And I think, you know, the fact that this is about a a productivity inquiry really goes to to the reality that right now we are not enabling people to fulfill their full potential as individuals. Um, And the lost participation, the lost opportunity and the lost productivity um, of people who are, uh, who experience poor mental health um, is having a massive impact on us as a country, economically, socially and at a community level. So, so I think that, you know, that's the broader thing is that, you know, the Productivity Commission taking that whole of life, whole of government approach and focusing on what are the systemic levers that we can pull to allow everybody to live their best contributing life, I think is a really important mm. concept. Yeah. Um, obviously at the code And then into the kind of more policy side of things. Yep. Obviously on the policy side of things, you know, really looking at how we've structured the system and the system is currently structured around providers. You come to me and I will help you, Um, reorienting the system towards people and communities and actually taking supports into people's homes and workplaces and communities has to be a really exciting, um, I think, outcome of the Productivity Commission's thinking. Yeah, and that's something that's come through in a lot of the podcasts that we've done is this whole, and it's certainly something I've written about and talked about previously, is this whole idea of we can't just keep waiting for people to reach out when they're in crisis all the time. Yeah. We have to start looking at better ways and engaging ways to empower them and to reach into people even when they're well so that there's this, yeah, again, breaking down the stigma and normalising these conversations so that when they are in crisis, they're much more likely to actually ask for help. So I think that's so, so important. Um, obviously at the Code 9 Foundation we see the direct mental health impact on our first responders and their families. So I'm wondering from your perspective what more you think we can be doing to better support those in the emergency services and on the front line who are out there protecting the community and particularly in light of what we're seeing now with the COVID pandemic. Mm. Well, look, can I just say thanks for the fantastic job that you're doing. I I think to my eternal shame we talked about this earlier. I'd actually 
didn't know much about Code 9, but I've done my research now and I take my hats off to all of you. It's just incredible what you're doing and so important. Um, so the first thing I'd suggest is you, you're probably aware or I hope you're aware of a major five-year research study that we've just actually finished um, where we've been working with um, families, with first responders themselves directly, but importantly through um, police and emergency services agencies mm. right around the country. It's a three-part study. The first part, we went and talked to first responders and to their families and said, what's going on for you? Second part, uh, we used those kind of findings to design a, a major national study, research study, um, where 21,000 police and emergency services workers um, participated. So the biggest study of its kind in the world. Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, and, and really that helped everybody who's who cares about the mental health of police and emergency services to understand the real issues in greater deal the, detail than ever before. So, for example, we now know we actually have national data and a baseline that we can measure against going forward. We now know that one in three police and emergency services employees experience high or very high psychological distress, and that's compared to one in eight Australian adults. It also, that study also gave us fantastic insights into what we can all do better to support those on the front line and those, um, you know, in, in homes as well. So what we've been doing in the last phase of the of the study is to actually work alongside police and emergency services agencies right around Australia to translate their agency level, level findings into practical actions. Um, and primarily that has been helping those agencies to revisit um, and evolve their mental health strategies so that uh, and what we've been really encouraging them to do is to focus more on the protective measures, mm -hmm. not the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, to use an analogy, yeah. but how do you actually keep your whole workforce, not just the one in three or the one in five who experience poor mental health every year, how do you, how do you protect everyone's mental health and support them to do that too? And strong workplace culture that's inclusive that facilitates regular discussions about workplace experiences and effectively manages the emotional demands of, of, you know, that inevitably come with your sector are, I think, the most important thing, almost more important than the support services, as important as they are. But if we can keep everybody understanding what to look out for, how to support one another and start and keep that active conversation yeah. where it's actually okay to not be okay those are the most powerful levers we've got. Yeah. Um, things, you know, and communication is a really, really important part of that. Uh, obviously, structural things like rosters and breaks and, you know, but giving staff really practical advice about those things that I talked about earlier, sleep, um, what to do, you know, if they're starting to wobble, who they can go to, peer support networks, uh, the importance of family involvement in solutions, um, but really kind of, especially at these times, being realistic and kind to yourself, I think, are really important yes. things. Yes, and I think they're things we really often overlook is being kind and compassionate to ourselves as well, isn't it? Exactly. I think the other thing that this study really shone a light on was that stigma, well, there's two parts, actually. The first thing is that we still have a long way to go to improve mental health literacy. Um, we know that through the study, when we spoke to, when we surveyed police and emergency services workers, 
um, they had themselves indicated through the, the various instruments that we used that they were ex actually experiencing high or very high distress and probable PTSD. But they actually didn't recognise that they had a mental mm. health issue. So there's a, that we, we still need to keep working on that literacy piece. Stigma is also still a very stubborn barrier. Um, and what we found through the study was a really interesting thing that we'd never seen before or we'd never had the data support before um, that individuals are really supportive of their colleagues so you know if Joe's got you know Joe's got depression Joe's a great guy he's a fantastic member of the team what can we do to support him what can we do to support you Joe but if you turn the coin and you turn the mirror on yourself self-stigma and fear of being judged by others was rife mm. so there's this real disconnect between you know, colleagues wanting to support colleagues who are experiencing poor mental health, but then not appreciating that those same colleagues would feel the same way about them. So there's a really important um, point that agencies and families and workers themselves need to be aware of. Um, so what I would say to Code 9 and your members is, you know, really get to understand that report it's a great it's actually a really good read yes, yes, um, yeah, and, no, you know we've tried to write it in a way that it's actually really accessible and yeah. you can kind of get to the key points quickly and then use that in your advocacy use that in your conversations with your members um, and yeah so I, it's a really rich information source um, and I would really be encouraging Code 9 to be encouraging the agencies themselves to be repeating those surveys and using that baseline data to build on and measure themselves against going forward so yeah. there's a, a couple of examples. Oh, fantastic and yes I mean absolutely the answer in the core research was groundbreaking not only here in Australia but I'd have to say internationally I don't think a data set like that exists anywhere to that extreme level and with that comprehensive amount of data um, that it provided. And I've certainly read it many times myself and taken different things away from it each time. And that stigma aspect that you just pointed out, we've, we've certainly touched on within Code 9 and within a couple of our, our other podcasts and recent podcast with Graham Ashton just before he retired and Tony Walker from AV, obviously, and they uh, all refer to the brilliant work that Beyond Blue is doing and that they really probably couldn't have moved forward to the, the point where they are without guidance from you guys. Um, but when I sort of ended the podcasts with both of them asking, where do we go from here? Like, we now know we've got that evidence base. We now know what the problems are. What do we actually need to do at the ground level for things to change? And they both reflected on the fact, which you have touched on as well, that we need to be more proactive rather than reactive in our responses. So I think we're certainly moving in the right direction. I think there's some frustration still out there on the ground from members who think that, you know, we know, we've known for ages what the problems are, but we're still not seeing change. Mm. And I think that's some of the frustration in that sometimes change can take a little while to happen. But yeah. I think we're certainly moving in the right direction. Well, I think, I think, as you said, for the first time, we actually have the real data and um, it's there in black and white. Mm. So, um, you know, again, using that as an advocacy piece and using that as the evidence to, to design the strategies is, is I think, you know, a really positive development. Yeah. And I go back to that issue around leadership. I go back to that issue around, um, you know, and this is not about fruit bowls and yoga. Um, we know from this study that supportive and inclusive workplaces where first responders said, yes, they, they felt like they were 
supported, included in conversations and had regular discussions around their workload, around the trauma that they are exposed to and, and how they're supported to you know, effectively manage the stress that they feel. Those workplaces had lower rates of PTSD mm. and psychological distress. So if you build that supportive work culture, which is, you know, doesn't cost anything actually, um, it's like giving your staff a, a mental health inoculation. Oh, I like that idea. I like that analogy, yeah. Um, I realise we're getting um, you know, ahead in time and I can always talk on these podcasts for so long because everyone is just so, so interesting. But um, I read read, I read somewhere, and I, I, to be honest, I'm embarrassed, I can't remember exactly where it was, but it said, um, it was referring to you saying that half of all mental health issues emerge by the age of 14 and that you support the Commission's view that we must be doing more to support children, young families or young people and their families. And that's something that we absolutely are focused on within Code 9. We have a group that has been set up dedicated to support the the, fam, the partners and the families who are living what we call alongside PTSD. So I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more around your um, ideas around this, uh, the fact that mental health emerges when we're young. Yeah, so we know that, um, you know, as, a, as, as you say, it's the naught to 12s. If, and if we can really, there's no, we can't start too early on this stuff. And it's not about diagnosing kids. It's actually about healthy social and, and emotional development. Um, uh, and, and the way to do that is to really work with families um, and in particular work with families who do face greater adversity than, you know, most of us. Um, so, you know, we know we've done a really good job. If we think about, you know, perinatal depression, for example, we've we've got a really good system in place to that screens mums, that talks to dads and other, you know, uh, and other partners uh, and provides great support uh, for parents in that perinatal period. Um, but we don't do the same routinely, like when that kid goes home. Um, you know, we don't regularly check in with those families to see how they're going. We don't use the points of the system where those families have contacts, whether that's for vaccinations or, you know, going to the GP to actually talk about their kid's social and emotional well-being. Um, we, you know, we, we need to be working through early learning centres a lot more and schools a lot more. Uh, we're, we're right now, Beyond Blue, supporting a centre of research excellence into childhood adversity and mental health. And that's not an academic exercise. It's a bunch of really great researchers working in, in communities with families and kids to design services that wrap around that family and actually provide that, that those families with the supports that actually will work for them. Mm. Um, we're, we're working a lot more um, in terms of the schools and early learning centres. So we've got a, a framework called BU, which is now in three quarters, or sorry, two thirds of every school in, in Australia and a growing number of early learning services where we focus on supporting the educators who spend a lot of time with our kids on, again, how do you embed social and emotional development into your teaching practice, into your contact with, this, with your, your students, into the way that students and kids play together? How do you work with families more effectively? Um, because quite often our teachers are the front line um, of, you know, spotting when things are not going so well for kids. Uh, and I'd like to, you know, say to your members, so bu.edu.au, um, 
there's a whole bunch of professional development on that, which is designed for teachers, but is really bite-sized and is open source. So it's actually available to anyone. If you're a parent or a caregiver and you're worried about your kid, go and jump on and do, you know, one of the 15-minute modules and learn about what to look out for and how to support um, the young people in your life. The other area um, that we're, that, or the other initiative we've got is, an, is a website called Healthy Families, healthyfamilies.org.au, which again is designed for every parent, every adult in Australia who's got a young person in their life. And again, very practical tips. What should I be looking out for? What are the services that might be available? How can our families um, work together with services, if that's what's needed, to actually support um, our kids to thrive? So, you know, cannot start early enough. And and families um, are absolutely the kind of third tripod, uh, the third leg of the tripod iPod, if you like, where the child's one, the parents or caregivers and families are the other, and the service system is is the third. Yeah. You can't work without the other. Yeah, and look, obviously, we and very sadly see the direct impact on on families and kids through Code Nine, and and you, you do hear stories of uh, this intergenerational impact of growing up. Um, as so so many of them call it, you know, they're growing up in the shadow of PTSD and mental health injury. They, you know, these young kids, adolescents, and they're growing up and they're seeing their their part uh, their parent, one of their parents, sometimes both parents, if they're both in the emergency services, struggling with mental health and the impact that then that that then follows on and has on the children. And we quite often, uh, we, we provide a very safe space for the partners to come together and to, to talk and laugh and vent and cry and share experiences and realise that they're not in it alone, that it's not just their family, it's not just their kid. Um, but there are behavioural issues. There are kids being diagnosed with PTSD. Very sadly, we've had suicide attempts among some yeah. of the kids in our in our cohort. So I'm wondering um, as, we, as we get towards the end of the, the podcast, if you do have any reflections and, and knowing that we will be having the wives, the spouses, the parents, the people living alongside PTSD listening to this, if you could reach out directly to them now and give them any kind of support, knowing that there a lot of them have been in lockdown with their um, family members who have PTSD. So it's been a particularly challenging time for them and some of the children have challenging needs as well. Uh, a lot of these mums, partners, wives, spouses are at their wit's end. Um, have you got any kind of advice around protecting their mental health at the moment? Yeah, look, it really goes back to that that stuff we were talking about earlier. You have to put your own oxygen mask on first mm. and you're all bloody legends, quite frankly. Yes. Um, and, you know, I think my, my, my main message to you is stay connected. Stay connected with Code 9, stay connected with one another. That peer support, it is not just rainbows and kittens. It is actually evidence-based, very, very effective way of keeping yourself well. Um, knowing that you're not in this alone. Yeah. It doesn't solve the problems that you're facing, but, you know, getting knowing that you're not alone and learning from others, sharing experiences, sharing tips, crying together, gnashing your teeth together, doing whatever it it takes to, you know, give yourself that moment of release and relief, I think is incredibly important. 
And if this um, um, bloody pandemic would just finally nick off, but we know we're in for a bit longer with yeah. that, but we're putting together a partner's day at a winery. So we think that's a nice start, a nice place to bring everyone together, all the wives and mums and partners and even the dads out there. We're not neglecting that some of the, the parents out there doing it tougher, the, the dads that are supporting first responders with PTSD as well. So we're going to be putting on a Code 9 Partners Day, so which will hopefully be the first of many to come, just so exactly as what you just said, so they can feel connected, I think. Perfect. Look, there's one more thing, and it's, it's a service that is absolutely fantastic, and unfortunately not enough parents know about it. ReachOut.com has a parent support service, six free sessions with a specially trained counsellor, completely free, can, can be done completely online or over the phone. Um, so reachout.com, parent support service. Um, it is fantastic. I've got a number of my f- friends and colleagues who use it and it's it's changed their thinking about how to support their kids. It's given them some really practical strategies. And it's also, you know, very helpful for them in terms of knowing that, you know, they're not, they're not failing their kids um, mm. and giving them, you know, that, that a bit of a boost as well. And yeah. it's, it's actually about self-care and self-replenishment. Oh, brilliant. Well, what I'm going to do is go back and pull out. You've given us some useful resources throughout the podcast. So I'll go back and pull those out and list all of those when we um, distribute the link to this as well. Georgie, um, I'm so grateful for your time today. I might leave us with one final question if it's all right with you. And this is at a very personal level. So it's the end of the day. You go home, no longer the CEO. You're just Georgie. What does good mental health and well-being look like to you when you're at home? Oh, well, here's my dirty little secret. So I'm an avid jigsaw puzzler. I have been since I was a tiny tot and I find jigsaws the most relaxing, replenishing, mindful activity that I could ever imagine. So I've just, <clears throat> my Rona project was a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, which I have finished and I was, you know, kind of, really getting a bit bit of withdrawal so now I'm on a 3,000 piece um, and it's just it's just takes me into a headspace that I can make that transition between work and being just Georgie Um, the other thing is my dog you know great big cuddles with my dog walking my dog you know her boundless love for me I find incredibly uh, replenishing Oh, look, and I don't know if anyone can, has got really bionic ears and has been able to hear any snoring in the background of today's podcast. That's my two black pugs who are asleep at my feet and most of the Code 9 family know the know the girls now. But I can't agree with you more on the unconditional love and how having a pet in your life can be uh, such a blessing when you're feeling a bit flat. And look, Je- Georgie, I take your jigsaws and raise you reality TV. And I spent most of this week on the couch watching The Real Housewives of New Jersey. I'd never seen it before. And I was just, it was like car crash Is it television. Good? Is it I, good? I couldn't look away. It was so bad. <laughs> but I, it was just the distraction that I needed. So I think we all need to have that little bit of, you know, at the end of the day when we're all working in areas where we are confronted with probably more than the general community in terms of disasters and emergencies and overwhelming trauma and this cumulative impact of trauma. It's so important for us all to have that ability to switch off and tune out. And I think one of the biggest things we had, as I mentioned to you before we started, we had a recent podcast with Jeff Kennett, who, of course, was the instrumental in in setting up uh, Beyond Blue and getting it to where it is today. And he was talking about the need to have 
uh, you know, companionship and something outside of work and particularly for the emergency services to have friendships that are outside of the emergency mm. services as well. So, uh, look, I'm just going to throw out a couple of words that I've noted down as we've been talking that have really stood out to me and that was absolutely that first analogy about nothing about us without us. Um, practicing what we preach and I love that whole idea of self-replenishment so on that note I'm going to say thank you so much for your time today the pugs and I are going to move from my desk to the couch and I'm going to watch (laughs) another episode of the Real Housewives of New Jersey and I'm going to frame that as self-replenishment and not feel any guilt at all I think that's the best thing I've heard all day go for it (laughs) Georgie Harmon thank you so much for your time today pleasure Erin thanks